this is the hindu on books a weekly podcast from india's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature Welcome to the Hindu's Book Podcast. With me is one of the authors, the co-author of Spy Stories, Adrian Levy. Adrian has written a number of books and we've spoken about them on previous episodes. We do want to speak much more about this particular book because it is unique and uh, is bound to be explosive when it actually hits the stands. Uh so let's bring on Adrian Levy. Welcome Adrian. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I I'm sorry that Kathy's not with me, you know. 50% of this work is often much more than that. It's done by Kathy Scott Clark and um she's uh, still working away on another project. So uh, please think of her as I speak. Even I have to say uh I am envious at this book because um you know the book is different from previous writings uh, that you and Kathy Scott Clark have put together uh, projects this particular project involves a high level of access uh, to uh, the top uh, people in the national security structure in both India and Pakistan but it actually involves getting them on the record for the first time you have national security advisor ajit doval on the record you have the deputy nsa rajinder khanna on the record former chief of uh, uh, ib uh, asif ibrahim on the record you have similar people in pakistan in that sense this is a very unique book and what makes it more so is that you are neither indian nor pakistani did that uh, make your access and uh, the 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 acceptance of all of these officials to speak to you a little easier you know i think um um we've talked about this before i'm um, i'm sure that um i i think we have a uh, insiderly outsiderly quality <laughs> the fact that we've been around for a very long time um and our outsiders but the outsiders who've also been insiders has kind of helped us and you know we began as kids almost 30 years ago um and um you know really uh you know ne- ne- didn't necessarily understand anything that was going on around us and one of the first things we would, they told us to do was to go and report in Kashmir and it was just chaos we, we couldn't understand what what was going on um and yet all the junior people we met uh, became mid-ranking people and then the mid-ranking people who didn't die or um become exhausted became high-ranking people and the result is you grow into your stories as as, as you have in your career and you know we 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 we've talked about this before and as, as long as you don't betray those uh you know yeah. and uh, you you don't um, you don't queer the pitch and 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 you know you keep um, a sense of honor between you and transparency then there's a chance that people will continue to tell you stories um and i think it's important to say that uh, everyone regards everyone else with healthy skepticism you know we gather information we trade information in the sense that we hear stories all around the world which um infuse and color how we see the world and so sharing that with other people who are deep in the weeds and who are committed to understanding things uh, becomes also addictive i think we're addicted to each other you know uh, i i i i could be with them um, with operators inside um ib or uh, in india and pakistan and we're all fascinated by you know who are the good actors and the bad actors literally who are they and you know who who are their families how do they come about what do they eat i mean all of that detail the granular detail it is what helps us um understand what has happened 
and what will happen. You know, and you realise after a certain amount of time that all of these people, they're an encyclopedia of, um, of jihad, an encyclopedia of, of the region, and so much of what they report internally differs from what is projected externally. There's this right. signal-to-noise ratio where, you know, diplomacy and political power means that you may say one thing when the reports internally indicate another. And so understanding the gulf between knowledge and political power um, is also a difference. Sure. And right at the top of your book, there's actually, uh, uh, you know, that gap between what is said publicly and what is said privately is shown up in a diplomatic sense. You say that Indian and Pakistani agencies, you say they're drawn from the same DNA, uh, but they talk these days to one another via back channels managed by Saudi Arabia and the Gulf monarchy. I presume you mean the United Arab Emirates. Um, that is explosive that you are saying on the record in a book that Indian and Pakistani agencies, it's the security agencies that are speaking to each other using a conduit. Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of fear on both sides that um, if all of your messaging um, comes from interception, um, you do not know after a while or trust what you're hearing, um, given that um, everyone understands um, the way in which interception works, um, the way in which um, technical intelligence is gathered these days. Um, there's a lot of false projection. And so actually having um, the assets, the wherewithal, the channels, um, to exchange occasionally ideas um, and fears really matters. Um, and we get the example of um, the Gavrilov line, which is a really beautiful name for um, a telephone uh, facility between CIA and the dying KGB at the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was created by um, officers who feared what would happen after the Soviet Union collapsed. And there's an important point here. You know, they, they, they knew um, um, a conflagration was coming and they wanted to be on the right side of it. And it hadn't been for Gavrilov. Gavrilov is actually the name of a poet. Oh, um, and he gave it to this phone line which connected Lubyanka to Langley, the KGB headquarters, the CIA headquarters. You know, then there would have been no kind of um, treaty um, treaty work that could have been done over drugs, counter-terrorism, etc., etc., etc. And the people involved with it have written this. Likewise, when you look at the patterns of RAWI's side, this deadly relationship between the two, what you see is that when the meaningful back channels have happened, it's nearly always to preempt a feared conflagration, a feared uh, bloodbath. Um, one of the, the strongest um, uh, back channels was developed um, at a time when um, the war would end in Afghanistan between the Mujahideen, the CIA backed, ISI prosecuted. And the Soviet Red Army. And at that point, then Zia, shortly before he would die, sends an emissary um, to meet um, with India. And a hearty conversation um, kicks up between um, Verma and um, Hamid Gul. Two people who are hawks, who wouldn't naturally have an inclination to talk, but that did head off the conflagration in Afghanistan. And likewise, if you right. skip ahead to now, and the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, there's a fledgling attempt at creating a back channel between PAC military, uh, PAC intelligence, and uh, the, the RAW. And in the middle, um, with Musharraf fearing um, the collapse of uh, Pakistan because of the enormous onslaught of pressure placed on the Pakistan security state by its own um, assets and proxies turning against it, he uses the school, school time, POW, 
um, to set up a back channel with um, uh, India. And um, fear of conflagration pushes those talks between RAW um, and RAW. So what you're saying is this this has happened in the past, but why the book yeah. stands out is because you're saying it is happening right now. Is this Mr. Doval who is meeting with the ISI chief? Um, give us more details of this very, very uh, enigmatic line in your book. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my understanding of this is not, um, you know, it's not, it's that these are not done on a chief to chief basis and the opportune meetings uh, are taken up with diplomatic cover. And certainly Mr. Doval has been involved in back channel meetings. Um, They're never, uh, as you know, um, held in India and they use the opportunity of talks in Thailand uh, and in the Gulf states and other places to, um, to prosecute these talks and to create the channels. Um, and one of uh, Mr. Duval's, um, uh, uh intents has been to remove cover from Pakistan by seeking out diplomatic uh, relationships with nations that have been either hostile or uninterested in India. And so, you know, there's been this leaning in towards uh, Turkey, towards um, Iran, towards China, towards Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Um, to remove cover from Pakistan and create familiarity uh, and a broader institutional knowledge within um, RAW, IB, um, and uh, the MEA, um, the diplomatic service um, of nations that previously were hostile. And so, you know, intelligence follows suit. Um, and security, of course, in the broader sense, national security, uh, NSA position, m- means that it, that it will do all these things in, in order to remove cover, but also to find out every gobbit of information, you know. I mean, I think we mentioned it in the book that, yeah. um, that, that, that Ajit Deval once said to us that there is nothing too small for it to be inconsequential. Yep, and he said, I need to study every scintilla. Every scintilla. You know, and there's this sense that nothing in every piece of pocket letter um, is interesting. And, uh, you know, again, signal to noise. You know, you, you, you see a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, we don't know this and we don't know that. Privately, privately, people are gathering an encyclopedia of everything. It's, an, it's, it's a unifying theory of everything. Um, you know, it may not be one that um, you or I would adhere to in, in many cases when it becomes politicized, but, but the minutiae is there. Right. Even so, when it comes when it comes to India and Pakistan, these are not academic or uh, encyclopedic exercises. These are real time uh, diplomatic maneuvers between two countries, as you said, always at the brink of war. Uh, So I do want to ask one more question about this. Did you at this point uh, when you were actually speaking to people in Abpara, crossing over Wagah the next day, Delhi Sardar Patel Bhavan meeting with the national security advisor? Did you cross the line from journalist to becoming a conduit yourself for talks between the two sides? Well, um, that you know that, that that line is very deeply dug and very clearly described. Um, and you know, I think we fail to be useful um, if we become that um, useful in the sense that you know you uh, you carry information. There's an exchange of information, a viewpoint which can be fresh. Um, in that you have access to uh, states, places, and people that other people don't. I mean, if I sit down like Kathy has done for the last year with uh, people involved in, in uh, CIA counterterrorism, they want to know what she's doing in Mauritania and in Syria. And the reason is that she has access to a whole range of different people that they don't necessarily. necessarily. So that there's a, there's a common common you know interest in in the new, in the different, in different perspectives. 
Um, to become um, other than that is uh, to be dishonest and to play a very dangerous game. Our, our, our way of working is to be totally transparent. We gave up a long time ago on uh, working in the dark web and with deep encryption um, in the belief that everything we were doing was seen by everybody. Um, stuff that we want to keep uh, extremely private, um, we uh, do not put on our computers and we keep in, in safe places where they're not transmitted digitally. You know, this is the job of the journalist and not the spy. The job is to carry water between different organisations, to share insights and to tease people out to, uh, in, in order to give more information. Not, this is not spying. This is not, you know, a trade craft. This is not giving nations secrets from other nations. You know, opinions can be asked. We ask opinions. They ask us our opinion. You know, we, we, we tell each other stories, but ultimately we're there to listen. Right. And, and, and from what you were listening, and I ask this because from uh, your recounting in the meadow, as I said, of the kidnapping to your most recent book in the exile, you have covered the story of India and Pakistan. You've covered the story of Kashmir and how it has been uh, such a thorn between the two countries for two decades. So do you have a sense that these talks between the two sides or the engagement between the two sides is leading to some kind of uh, a roadmap or a, or a way forward on this contentious issue of Jammu and Kashmir? I, I sense that it, is, it isn't, but I sense that there are other issues um, that are being discussed about, and that actually Kashmir is not one of them. Um, you know, there, there, there's many more interests that um, involve around the Durham line and Afghanistan that involve, um, you know, uh, Iran uh, and Turkey, and that involve China and Saudi Arabia. And while that's said publicly, privately, the discussions will focus on water sharing, on common borders, on counter-terrorism, um, on economic measures. Um, and also, they continually focus on reciprocity. And what spies mean by that is the way in which nations exacerbate the pain in different regions. So, you know, flare-ups in Baluchistan, flare-ups um, in, in, uh, in, in, in the Sindh and in Karachi, flare-ups in the northeast of India, um, in, in the Punjab, the drug trade. That wends its way, wends its way politically over both borders. Uh, Hawala and the illegal movement, secret movement of cash and money through the Gulf states. RAW and RSI are hugely hectically busy in Thailand. Um, they're very, yeah. very busy um, in the Gulf states. These are where the war sublimates you these days, and they're very busy projecting themselves. You know, so a lot of the talks are about how they project themselves, winning the public space, which is what Balakpot, Kulwama. Um, are, are, are about winning the public space. Right. And an interesting pattern that emerged, of course, is that, um, you know, uh, ISI came about and was told right from the beginning um, in its inception, post-partition, do not dabble in internal politics. And, um, you know, within five years, it was fully committed to dabbling in internal politics. And yet, you know, an untold story in one sense of Raw IB is that... Um, the same instinct would happen and dabbling in internal politics and uh, listening in to the voices of many becomes a big issue for Raw IB. Uh, Adrian, I, I did want to speak about the characters in your book. And there are two specific characters, one uh, that belongs to the ISI, Major Iftikhar, one who works for the RNAW, Monisha, single name. Uh, I want to start by asking you if these are real characters, uh, specifically Two characters, or are they composites of spies that you've met? Um, uh, they're, they're real people whose names have been changed. Um, in the case of Iftikhar, Iftikhar was a nom de guerre that, um, that he used. 
uh, one of many that he used um, coming um, into um, um, India. Um, and uh, the reason, just before going on to Manisha, the reason um, uh, uh, what lies behind the thinking with these uh, personal stories, apart from being a way of um, you know reducing everything um, to the human, of course, and you know making real characters that um, are easy to follow, um, is that um, people in the organisation continually said, "Don't take the viewpoint from uh, senior executive officers alone." As we you know been discussing before, it's very important to know what people think who are on the operations level, um, analysts, clandestine officers. So um, in uh, Iftikhar's case, um, a major who worked in clandestine but began um, on, a, on a much more junior level um, and co-opted to work on numerous cycles within ISI um, with a special interest in uh, Kashmir, but also um, in counterinsurgency more generally. And with Manisha, it's something totally different. Uh, someone who um, had uh, been one of those exceptionally bright people who got through the administrative service exams um, and was tapped to be in um, the RAW um, and then got, goes through um, her training to be an analyst, um, working in counter-terrorism um, eventually um, and having access to liaisons um, in other countries um, and having travelled um, as a result of that, but not as a clandestine operator, as an analyst, um, working um, subsequently um, uh, looking at counter-terrorism and tech um, involving um, Lashkar Toiba and uh, many other um, different um, Islamist um, and insurgent outfits, um, etc. So yeah, they, um, Manisha's story is slightly more complicated in that um, there are parts of her story um, that are combined with um, another female officer, also um, in the States, um, the uh, middle section of her story, um, uh, which were combined with both of their knowledge um, into one um, storytelling under the name Manisha. Um, and what we did is we took the tapes of these two interviews um, and sewed them together um, um, so that we could understand um, how the time um, lapsed. Uh, there's a reason for that, which is that um, Manisha, one, had a posting um, which um, she couldn't talk about. And in that timeline, Manisha, two, um, was working um, on operations um, which were very similar in counter-terrorism. So um, we, we put those together as an amalgam. Right. Between the two, of course, they uh, map, if you like, as agents, uh, some of the big stories of our time, uh, whether it yeah. has been uh, the hijacking of IC-81 for uh, what happened after 9-11, the parliament attack, uh, and how that was carried out, 26-11 and Mumbai, uh, all the way to recently Pathan Court, Pulwama, uh, as well as uh, 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 as well as some of the arrests we've seen of uh, uh, former Commander Jadhav there in Pakistan, uh, the story about um, uh, the, the the story about uh, uh, some of the other uh, operations that have been carried out on the Indian side. What you're essentially saying in your book is that most of these stories and the conspiracies that uh, were were hinted at are actually true. So uh, if I could just pull, pull apart some of them. For example, you speak about uh, the man who's really the link between the IC-814 hijacking and 9-11, Omar Saeed Sheikh, who was supposed to actually be uh, one of the financiers uh, of the 9-11 attacks. He was released during the IC-814 hijacking by Indian authorities uh, in exchange for uh, four hostages on board the hijacked plane. Uh, and now, 20 years later, we see him acquitted for the killing of journalist Daniel Pearl. Uh, 
my real question how how does he and uh, his uh, backers in the pakistani state how do they get away with it wow there's so many things going on there some true some not um i think you know the, the first thing to say is that um there are seminal events and these events um are part of the creation story um as people like to say uh, in hollywood um when addressing the marvel cinematic universe <laughs> the origin stories of bad actors and the origin stories of spies um and you can draw a straight line from the kidnappings in delhi and kashmir of 94 95 via IC814 and the hijacking um in Kandahar in 99 to um the events that take place after 911 and the reason for that of course is that the people caught up in those events um subsequently um new crimes are committed once they're captured by India um in order to um uh, persuade India to release them we're talking about the cleric Masood Azhar and Omar Sheikh um and of course when India um won't release them then um you know a hijacking takes place to release them and others in a greater group and the people who are part of the hijacking attempt are also people who are connected to the early kidnapping attempts and of course having them being battle hardened through kidnapping hijacking um and in the case of the release then of Omar Sheikh um Amasud Azhar these people become very senior in their own organizations as bad actors um you know uh, committing um to attacking the Pakistan state and the Pakistan uh, um ISI CIA deal um so yeah recurring people who were same recurring very small group of highly active and then proficient um uh, people who are running these um insurgent terror operations and the same group of spies and the same group of paramilitaries who are pursuing them where, where um uh, the story begins to get more complicated um are the individual stories um and the public truths and lies about who these people really are So for example you mentioned the Briton um Omar Sheikh Said Omar Sheikh and um you know it it what well, it's true that he uh, he ends up um attempting um an extraordinary kidnapping in Delhi an abduction and it's true that he was caught by um um Indian IB and that he goes to jail and it's true that he's uh, politicized further in jail and that he's released as a result of the hijacking but many other things that happen after that are not true are simply not true that um he becomes and continues to be an asset of the ISI there's no indication that, that, that that's the case and if anything he was working against the interests of ISI uh, bloodily and brutally and against the interests of um Sharaf and uh, the military in the Pakistan state um ultimately the only way they could um they could get rid of him was by um heaping charges on him in connection with the Daniel Pearl um kidnapping and yet what we know now having seen so much of the paperwork concerning the Daniel Pearl case and how that um how that played out was that um RSI had fingered another person for the murder of that um, the Wall Street Journal American Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl and it wasn't Said Omar Sheikh and Omar Sheikh may have been and probably likely was involved um in the abduction of Daniel Pearl but not in his murder and yet the mistake um that Pakistan had made was to push through uh, America's insistence murder charges against him rather than conspiracy and abduction charges and so then you know once this man's um, services uh, uh, sentence has been served um obviously a lot of people are outraged and thought that he would be released and yet um the reason it's doubly outrageous is that the ISI can't reveal that they knew all along who was likely to be the person who had killed Daniel Pearl and that that person had been in jail prior to the capture of Omar Sheikh and been held in secret detention by the ISI was withheld from the criminal justice system in Pakistan and eventually um then rearrested 
um, and executed finally um, and quite recently, meaning that his story would always be denied, his testimony never heard. And so even in that one tangled story, you can see there are so many untruths. There are, there's mythologizing, there's a political intent, there's um, you know, narratives that suit, suit the state, and there's also the um, untoward and undue pressure placed by CIA looking for elements of CIA, looking for quick results. Um, but but and, there, is, um, there is a larger thread, in fact, of this kind of persistent um, uh, ability to, uh, to sort of escape finally being held accountable. Omar Sheikh Saeed right. is just one example. There is, of course, Masood Azhar, uh, who was again released at IC814. He has been, uh, uh, he has, uh, you know, India has found a lot of evidence that has been passed over, that has been uh, acknowledged. He right. is a UN Security Council uh, designated terrorist as of a few years right. ago. There's Hafiz Saeed. Uh, there are other actors, Zakir Rahman, Lakhvi. You, of course, refer to a lot of them and the roles they played in all these big attacks that we spoke about. And yet we don't see the Pakistani state either cracking down on them or being held to account for not cracking down on them. I don't mean uh, financially, as we have seen from the FATF, but basically that these are terrorists who have been in the picture for two decades now uh, without anyone right. being held yeah. to account. Uh, in terms of your book itself, was was that something that uh, that you you posed to Pakistani officials when you spoke to them? Yeah, continually, we repeatedly, uh, you know, went through all of these uh, major events, you know, many of which you've listed, and the individuals as well. I mean, what, what, one important thing to say, without denying anything that you've said, you know, and I, I, I think everything you've said is entirely accurate, is is that um, that, that first of all, and I hope the book makes this clear, the um, internal um, the internal collapse in Pakistan after ISI signed up to the CIA pact and the American war on terror. The scale of that was never previously really known. Um, and the number of um, ISI officers, uh, military officers, um, and in particular um, elite special forces uh, working for Zarek Company, who broke away and joined an amalgam of Al-Qaeda, Jaish, the Lashkar Toiba and the sectarian um, thugs from uh, organizations like Lashkar Jangbi to form um, a, um, a standing army pitted against Pakistan. That story has not yet been told properly. And we're not talking about, you know, oh, you know, it's a spat involving a few hundred people. We're talking about many thousands of foot soldiers who are dragooned by the same dragoon controlled by the same small band of leaders. Um, there are many, many more attacks on corps commanders, Musharraf himself, ISI leaders, than have ever been publicly admitted, with devastating consequences um, and uh, mass casualties, um, which often have been concealed by the state that was concerned not to seem weak or failing, which, um, of course, both of those things were true. Um, so um, the attack that was then mounted on those organisations was considerable. Um, you know, they, they totally hollowed out Lashkar Jangdi, um, they pushed um, in, um, many of the leadership over into, um, uh, first of all, into Fatah, and then from Fatah flipped them into Afghanistan. And the same took place with um, uh, Jaish. Um, L.E.T. Um, was more fraught um, for reasons that um, all of your listeners will know, because, of course, um, it had a huge constituency in Pakistan by identifying okay. itself as, you know, the, uh, 
the, the agency of uh, Kashmir liberation. Um, but something deadly happened with them too, and it's something that Pakistan has not yet widely acknowledged. Um, and the most deadly thing that happened with them is that they became much more like Jaish. A whole section of AT, um, we discovered, had been um, um, moved itself um, to Syria. Right. They'd gone via Turkey through safe houses and taken a full-throated, full-bodied um, role, um, allying themselves in one case with Al-Qaeda, um, and then in another case with Islamic State, they were being tracked by Indian intelligence and by um, American intelligence and by British intelligence. And not only that, but they were moving around other um, areas of, um, uh, of, um, of chaos, including Libya. They were right. present in the, attempting to be present mm-hmm. in the Rohingya struggle. Um, and, uh, you know, we could name they were in Iraq, etc. And so far more serious, far more deadly um, uh, in, in that sense. Um, right. So on one hand, you have, um, you have, um, the almost near collapse of Pakistan um, with um, the winning away of um, assets, state assets, um, who are not under the command and control of our side, who are under their own command and control and carrying out uh, a bloodbath. Um, and then you have um, others that um, come out of this and may still have connections to our side, but themselves are operating in new areas. A really good example of this is, um, you know, is the new Jaish. You know, where is... The new Jaish is base of operation. It's in Afghanistan. You know, they're in uh, Lashkar they're in Helmand broadly. They've also popped up in Khost, and their phones have been um, intercepted. Their communications have been intercepted in real time um, with the new command and control center in southern Afghanistan. You know, that, 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 that um, is exceedingly worrying, worrying for everybody. And you have a figure like Masood Azza. You know, Indian intelligence cannot figure out, you know, how this, what a charmed life. Massive exactly. has had, you know, what a charmed existence. You know, his organisation went rogue. Um, they became enemies of the Pakistan state. They attempted to kill Musharraf repeatedly and other leaders and core commanders and RSI, uh, senior RSI officers, executive officers, and clandestine officers. The organisation was brutally treated, and yet the leader Massoud Azhar was kept. Why was he kept? RAW asked continually, why was he kept? He certainly was used as a messenger boy. Uh, when, I, um, when uh, ISI got in trouble with China um, by hosting um, Chinese Islamists um, and also other groups that attacked Chinese interests, Masood Azza was used as a, a messenger and sent to address those groups in attempts to stop them attacking Chinese assets, which is an embarrassment for uh, Pakistan. And uh, they attempted, of course, I think, to use him in other ways to reach into his family and um, the associated fronts, but that policy has failed. And the evidence for that fails is by looking at um, events like Pulwama, where we can see that his extended family was responsible directly for that and organised it from Afghanistan. Right. You know, um, so um, yes, it's a mixed picture. It's it's a mixed picture, definitely. That's that's certainly interesting, and it's going to, as you point out, be an area of continued worry for India as the Taliban takes over. Uh, uh, areas and territory in Afghanistan. Another big story uh, that you uh, talk about towards the end of uh, the book is that of the the case of uh, of Kulbushan Jadhav, who's been arrested in Pakistan, uh, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, and now there is another legal process going on over there. You make a fairly controversial assertion that uh, that you actually surmised that he was in fact spying for India or had offered to spy for India uh, and that he was caught in a trap 
by Pakistani intelligence. Tell us a little more about that, because uh, given that you've been in touch with uh, the entire National Security Council structure, that seems like a fairly uh, a controversial conclusion to come to. Well, I think, I think the important thing here to realize is that, this, you know, to say, to say to listeners is that in the world of intelligence, there's a massive difference between being an officer and being an asset. You know, an asset is someone that um, is fostered and, and, and paid often and uh, has a relationship with intelligence officers, but has none of the training. You know, it's someone who may be in a position geographically, historically, to hand over sensitive, intriguing, insightful information but themselves have none of the training and the smarts and the field crop that goes with being an officer. Um, and, you know, it could be that just through the advantage of you being the only person left in Kandahar, you being the only person in Tabela Ghazi, you being in Taftan on the border with Iran, you become an asset, uh, or you offer your services to be so. Um, in the Yadav story, uh, certain things happen that are very interesting. Um, there's certainly um, early on, uh, within many um, uh, elements of the Indian military and military intelligence and the intelligence community more broadly, that, that senses a shift um, happening. Um, and it tries to anticipate the shift. And the shift is that uh, Musharraf is forced by America and concedes to shut down a lot of the launch pads and operations in Kashmir, which begins to happen after, particularly after the attempts on his life um, really get to him. So 2002-2003... Um, the, these things will happen. And by 2004, a lot of the Kashmir-facing uh, official infrastructure has been dismantled. But what an organization like Lashkar Toiba will do is therefore change up, change its game. And what, what it began to assess through doing different maneuvers was that there was a sea route through to India when the mountains were shut down. And that sea route to India meant that um, it would send boats. And so you can see here an idea growing in 2003, 2, 3, and 4, that the sea route would be way for them to attack India. And of course, that would be the sea route that's prosecuted um, in 2611, all those years later. But it's an early idea. And the Navy spots that idea, the Indian Navy. They, 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 they come to capture some boats. Uh, they see um, uh, you know, evidence of um, bases moving. Uh, RAW does the same. The DIA, Defence Intelligence Agency, also catches wind of this. IB knows. And so you know, it becomes interesting at a certain time that people within the Navy should become involved um, in anti-LET operations, getting into Karachi becomes vital because LET has moved from Kashmir, the Pakistan side, and Safarabad, down to Karachi, um, where it's got a, a big base of operations and a small naval operation. Um, and all of that will become vital after um, an outrage like 2611. Then, of course, every intelligence agency needs more assets in Pakistan, more assets inside LET more assets that can tell the story of what's going on um, and ISI's involvement, if it has an involvement, what it's doing, etc. So, then you have Commander Yadav, a serving officer, um, who is operating in between Pakistan, Iran, Chabahar, the competing ports, Aguada ports, controlled uh, by Pakistan, uh, in which India has um, a lot of interests, or had a lot of interests. Um, and you have a man who, who um, suddenly becomes apparently useful um, to many different people. You know, an opinion, uh, an opinion that would, would be listened to, um, right. a pair of eyes who sees things 
um, and those things may be interesting. In fact, in the um, book, you and, you oh, quote Monisha to say every Indian intelligence agency was interested in Jadav at that time. Everyone, everyone was interested because you know there are not that many people who have uh, the wherewithal to travel or the business cover to do so. Um, it's an area that's hot, it's contested, it's exceedingly difficult to work in. Um, and you know, there's plenty of RAW operations in Iran. Um, uh, in Balochistan, uh, in uh, in Iranian Balochistan, and in in Chabahar, but to have that, uh, that 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 facility to be travelling uh, widely and even to get down to Karachi would make you exceptional, but not as an officer, as an asset. And let's say that that person is spotted, and you know, good counter terrorist operation, uh, counter insurgency operation, um, um, uh, involving us. So I spots him, you know, and then the documents are examined. The first thing the documents tell you is that this guy's not an officer, but an asset. And the reason for that is that he's done stupid things, um, unfortunate things, tragic things. He's operating under a false name, but with other details that are real. And the documents themselves are licensed and registered to the accurate, real addresses of his greater family. And of course, you know, uh, uh, they would not take um, uh, really uh, Sherlock Holmes-like sleuthing to work out who that family is, where they live in Mumbai, um, and, and to cross-check right. those documents and realize that, that there is no cover. There is zero cover. Um, the only cover being that a false religion was placed in the religious box. Um, and that meant that, um, you know, in, in, in a spy sense, the worst thing you can do is to capture somebody. If you capture someone, it's a lot of money spent on a very short time scale in an operation that goes nowhere. But if you let an operation run long and you see who that person um, is talking to and you then can use that for propagandistic reasons to lay charges against an individual and blow him up and create him into a super spy, then that could be profitable for Pakistan. And so this um, perception operation begins to take lowly Yadav, a fixer, uh, uh, entrepreneurial figure, and turn him into something much bigger um, and fish for him, put in little hooks and barbs that he would then catch hold of. And before he knew it, um, you know, he could be created into this particular figure within Indian intelligence, which he wasn't. And today his life does hang in the balance pending this uh, new legal process and the new law that the Pakistani government has uh, brought about that allows him to appeal through a civilian court. Uh, my question, given, uh, and you write a little bit about spy swaps of another kind, given your experience of both agencies, do you think uh, that uh, uh, that a spy swap, in a sense, would be a way out of this particular situation? Yeah, he's a political, he's a piece of political collateral. You right. know, I mean, the worry earlier on, I think, for everybody was that, um, uh, you know, uh, when, when you have, um, when, when you have events like um, the resolution of the parliament attack cases, yeah. um, you know, that there will be uh, a symmetry that takes place there, i.e. India appears to hang a protagonist in the parliament attack cases, and therefore Pakistan responds with another hanging, hanging for a hanging, Execution for an execution, spy for a spy. Right. You know, there is this fear all the time, and it must hang over Yadav's um, head in his cell, that um, any number of things can go wrong in this high-stakes game. He is collateral. He, uh, you know, the, it is possible um, that that kind of exchange could happen. But there's plenty of prehistory to show that these exchanges don't necessarily go down too well. And many of them take decades to work out. And if you look at the prisoners uh, from previous conflicts, that go right the way back. Um, right. You know, uh, many of these people who are classified as MIA, missing in actions, have never been adequately traded and become other people with other lives. 
So, you know, let's reduce this to a human level momentarily and, you know, think about his extended family um, and his wife and children in Mumbai. This shows you the kind of cutthroat game that the spy game really is, um, where someone who is an asset and not an officer can become trapped. Uh, And I, I believe trapped he is becomes uh, someone who's not an asset, uh, who's an asset and not an official, actually becomes a much bigger character. And as you said, now political collateral. Uh, you know, in your yeah. book, uh, you and Kathy have revealed so much um, in each of these cases. Uh, you've even uh, uh, pulled the Band-Aid, if you like, off on a much, uh, on a well-known uh, hidden secret, which is that there is no such, uh, that the RNAW doesn't actually ever admit to being operatives of the RNAW. Uh, officials are told to be part of the cabinet secretariat. You have named safe houses that were bought at a certain time. Uh, so I do need to ask you, how much of this book did you actually have to clear with intelligence agencies on both sides? Um, and nothing, nothing's clear, but we were honest. You know, we said that, that you know, we know this, uh, we have this contention, we have this information, um, you know, the, the, these are the stories that we're thinking about. We argue all the time. You know, uh, this is my version, this is their version. Um, you know, I have this paperwork, they have that paperwork, I bring these files, they have those files. Kathy comes with information from the US, um, which would be a CIA, FBI contention. Um, including stuff from the Daniel Pearl case, you know, and this is hotly disputed. Sometimes it's agreed upon reluctantly, and at other times we'll agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the key thing is that there, you know, there are no real surprises in that, you know, people know the areas that we're looking at. Uh, there will there will be large disagreements about, um, you know, about Kashmir. There'll be disagreements about the Parliament attack. But one key point here with a lot of these cases and re-examining them is there's a lot of information that comes to light afterwards that was not placed in the purview of the court and not handed to the investigating authorities. So it's not that the institutions themselves may fail looking back at these cases. It's that they may not have access to all the things they need to see. Um, And that's certainly a point that we've tried to make looking at Parliament attack looking at even before that um, outrages that took place in Kashmir, but that are emblematic. And then going forwards, you know, I don't think we have a particularly controversial view of Paul Warmer, other than where its command and control is. But seeing Paul Warmer in the context in which it happened becomes really important. You know, having the time to look at the long ball game and see how, how spies go to work in right. these kinetic situations, which are often human tragedies. And how much did you worry about your own uh, um, safety? You've written about the death of Salim Shahzad. That's somebody uh, that I'd spoken to as well a few days before his death. Uh, and uh, it, it is very clear that when journalists get too close to the truth, Salim Shahzad, of course, was writing about uh, the Al-Qaeda penetration of the Pakistani uh, military and of rogue elements like 313 and Elias Kashmiri. Um, how worried were you about your own safety after you see something like that? You know, I mean, we, we, we never, we, we're not those kind of journalists. So, you know, we're not war horses. Uh, we don't talk about our own, uh, you know, our, our own stories so much. I mean, I'm not, you know, we plan, uh, we plan, we plan again, we plan some more, we think some more, we plan some more. It's all about organization. I mean, what I do think is it's a really terrible time to be a journalist, you know, I mean, uh, and, and I'm not talking just um, about being in India and Pakistan, um, where it's been super tough uh, being a journalist. I'm talking about generally, you know, journalism is under attack. The, the, the idea of research and publishing of free ideas is under attack. It's under attack in America. 
you know, uh, the Espionage Act of, of uh, 1917 was used by the Obama administration repeatedly against American journalists. Uh, whistleblowers um, were vengefully treated um, by successive administrations um, in America and jailed. Uh, sources were subpoenaed and journalists' notes and phone records secretly taken without their knowledge. Um, the same thing has taken place um, aggressively in other countries. Um, it's a very, very bad time. You know, truth is hard to know. Uh, finding the truth is becoming exceedingly difficult, foolish, cumbersome, time-consuming, costly. Uh, uh, legal actions are taken out against um, all journalists repeatedly in an attempt to slow them down and inhibit their ability to tell the truth. And all the means that you use um, potentially are being eavesdropped. And so one has to presume that everything you know, other people will get to know. Um, mm-hmm. And in this crisis, in the midst of all of this difficulty, this, this storm of, uh, of knowing and not knowing, the most important thing, I think, is therefore to be transparent and not to be, uh, not to be the person that people think you are, uh, not to wear specialist clothing, not to uh, don the hat of the war reporter and pretend to be the thing that you're not. Be the civilian, the nosy civilian information gatherer and be brave enough to push to publish what you find. Right. Interesting. Finally, I do want to ask you, you have had this kind of bird's eye view over uh, decades of these two countries' intelligence agencies. And of course, you know, on the Indian side, it's made up of the RNAW and the IB. On on the Pakistani side, there is a military intelligence, but it's basically the ISI. Uh, Give me a sense of what you think. You know, you talk about how they start out very similar. Uh, but what is the difference today between the two when it comes to their funding, when it comes to the technology they use, and finally, when it comes to their penetration of their biggest enemy, which is, of course, across the border? I mean, obviously, things change over time. You know, Pakistan um, became, uh, the uh, Pakistan services side became enormously well-funded as a result of um, a whole series of operations, but particularly in the 1980s with the, the war in Afghanistan. And that uh, they also became battle-hardened in that period. But then India had um, technological advantages because Pakistan was not allowed to so openly um, uh, take advantage of technological exchanges with um, America, for example. Um, and um, the uh, India invested very heavily in technology, and so there was then a disparity between um, you know, the technological abilities of India um, and those of Pakistan. Pakistan's strength lay in kinetic operations and human intelligence. But actually, when you stand back and you have the, the ability to, to stand back and look at the timeline, what you see is that both outfits use proxies continually and successfully. Both outfits believe in reciprocity um, by operating in stress points of the enemy's territory. Both um, recruits um, necessarily um, criminals, thieves, organised go- crime goons um, um, in order to um, carry out operations in that milieu. Um, and uh, both um, use honeypots to ensnare and trap male, female, gay, straight officers um, and uh, also to, to mount industrial espionage operations. India's tremendous success, apart from having, um, uh, you know, um, these uh, technological boons and assets, has been to project itself as benign um, and to allow the story to be told of kinetic, hot, um, backfiring Pakistan operations, whereas actually a more fair and even-handed approach would show you that this analysis is wrong and that it's a kinetic war fought by kinetic agencies that mount similar operations. There's been more blowback in Pakistan. Pakistan's been much more the cradle of war. 
But um, that could change with lawlessness in Afghanistan. And of course, you know, the violent use of proxies um, in Kashmir has um, led to, to bloodshedding on all sides. So remarkably, um, there are similar similarities and differences. One large difference, of course, is that um, the democracy um, in, uh, in India, even if um, under stress, um, is a profound desire. Um, and the army and security establishment is still at a distance from the democracy. And in India, although the intelligence services have no charter and constitutional position, which is a disaster, I believe, um, you know, it's quite different to the setup in Pakistan, where democracy is anemic um, and undermined by the tectonic plates of the military that really hold everything together. And so, you know, it is not like for like in that sense. It is not like for like. Um, the question now is whether that will change in India too, whether there'll be, you know, a greater winnowing uh, of democracy, more authoritarianism. We're certainly engaged right now in the battle for truth, truthfulness, um, and a battle for information. Uh, certainly, and it's interesting that while you do make the case that Pakistan is where these terrorists and their terror groups exist and uh, get support, uh, India too, uh, you, you point out that India's uh, quote-unquote pacifism, which it has suffered uh, brickbats for, is at times also uh, not completely the truth. And uh, you've said that India too has spilt blood but invisibly uh, over time. Yes. There's so many of these uh, uh, secrets and skeletons uh, that will come tumbling out when you do read the book. So uh, we'll have to leave it over there. Adrian Levy and Kathy Scott Clark uh, have written the book. If, uh, if you haven't yet got your copy, it's called Spy Stories Inside the Secret World of the RNAW and the ISI. Adrian Levy, thanks so much for speaking with us at The Hindu. It's, it's lovely to talk to you and I hope to speak to you soon. Take care, please. And you too. For The Hindu, I'm the diplomatic editor, Sohasini Heather. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 